Welcome to David R. Welland's Reads Literature, The Romantic Period. Today's episode is William Blake, 1757 to 1827. And I will read um, about his biography and and um, the cultural milieu that he um, practices art in. And uh, up, to, up to the Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. And that I will treat and read in another episode after this one. So let me get started. Thank you. William Blake, 1757-1827. What William Blake called his spiritual life was as varied, free, and dramatic as his corporeal life was simple, limited, and unadventurous. His father was a London tradesman. His only formal education was in art. At the age of 10, he entered a drawing school, and later he studied for a time at the School of the Royal Academy of Arts. At 14, he entered an apprenticeship for seven years to a well-known engraver, James Bazir, and began reading widely in his free time and trying his hand at poetry. At 24, he married Catherine Boucher, daughter of a market gardener. She was then illiterate, but Blake taught her to read and to help him in his engraving and printing. In the early and somewhat sentimentalized biographies, Catherine is represented as an ideal wife for an unorthodox and impecunious genius. Blake, however, must have been a trying domestic partner in his vehement attacks on the torment caused by a possessive, jealous female will which reached their height in 1793 and remained prominent in his writings for another decade, probably reflect a troubled period at home. The couple was childless. The Blakes for a time enjoyed a moderate prosperity while Blake gave drawing lessons, illustrated books, and engraved designs made by other artists. When the demand for his work slackened, Blake, in 1800, moved to a cottage at Feltham on the Sussex seacoast to take advantage of the patronage of the wealthy amateur of the arts and biography William Haley, also a supporter of Charlotte Smith, who, with the best of narrow intentions, tried to transform Blake into a conventional artist and breadwinner. But the caged eagle soon rebelled. Haley, Blake wrote, is the enemy of my spiritual life, while he pretends to be the friend of my corporeal. At Feltham in 1803 occurred an event that left a permanent mark on Blake's mind and art. An altercation with one John Schofield, a private in the Royal Dragoons. Blake ordered the soldier out of his garden and... When Schofield replied with threats and curses against Blake and his wife, pushed him the fifty yards to the inn where he was quartered. Schofield brought charges that Blake had uttered seditious statements about kings and country. Because England was at war with France, sedition was a hanging offense. Blake was acquitted, an event, according to a newspaper account, which so gratified the auditory that the court was thrown into an uproar 
by their noisy exultations. Nevertheless, Schofield, his fellow soldier cock, and other participants in the trial haunted Blake's imagination and were enlarged to demonic characters who play a sinister role in Jerusalem. The event exacerbated Blake's sense that ominous forces were at work in the contemporary world and led him, and led him to complicate to complicate uh, the symbolic and elusive style by which he veiled the radical religious, moral, and political opinions that he expressed in his poems. The dominant literary and artistic fashion of Blake's youth involved the notion that the future of British culture would involve the recovery through archaeology, through archaeology as well as literary history of an all-but-lost past. As an apprentice engraver, he learned to draw by sketching the medieval monuments of London churches. Blake began his artistic career in the thick of that antiquarianism. It also informs his early lyric poetry, Poetical Sketches, published when he was 26 suggests Blake's affinities with a group of later 18th century writers that includes Thomas Wharton, poet and student of Middle English Romance, and Elizabethan verse, Thomas Gray, translator from Old Icelandic and Welsh, and author in 1757 of The Bard, a poem about the English conquest of Wales. Thomas Percy, the editor of the ballad collection Relics of Ancient English Poetry, 1765, and James McPherson, who came before the public in the 1760s, claiming to be the translator of the epic verse of a third-century Gaelic bard named Ossian. Like these figures, Blake located the sources of poetic inspiration in an archaic native tradition that, according to the prevailing view of national history, had ended up eclipsing, after the 17th century, the French court culture, manners, and morals began their cultural ascendancy. Even in their orientation to a visionary culture, the bards of Blake's later prophetic books retain an association with this imagined version of a primitive past. Poetical Sketches was the only book of Blake's to be set in type according to customary methods. In 1788, he began to experiment with relief etching, a method that he called illuminated printing, a term associated with works with the illuminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages, and used to produce most of his books of poems working directly on a copper plate with pens, brushes, and an acid-resistant medium. He wrote the text in reverse so that it would be print so it would print in the normal order and also drew the illustrations. He then etched the plate in acid to eat away the untreated copper and leave the design standing in relief. The pages printed from such plates were colored by hand in watercolors, often by Catherine Blake, and stitched together to make up a volume. This process was laborious and time-consuming, and Blake printed very few copies of his books. For example, of Songs and 
of Songs of Innocence and of Experience, only 28 copies, some of them incomplete, are known to exist. Of the Book of Thel, 16. Of the Marriage of Heaven and Hell, 9. And of Jerusalem, 5. To read a Blake poem without the pictures is to miss something important. Blake places words and images in a relationship that is sometimes mutually enlightening and sometimes turbulent, and that relationship is an aspect of the poem's argument. In the mode of relief etching, he published Songs of Innocence in 1789, then added supplementary poems and printed Songs of Innocence and of Experience in 1794. The two groups of poems represent the world as it is envisioned by what he calls two contrary states of the human soul. Gradually, Blake's thinking about human history and his experience of life and suffering articulated themselves in the giant forms and their actions, which came to constitute a complete mythology. As Blake's mythical character, Los, said, speaking for all imaginative artists, I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's. This coherent but constantly altering and enlarging system composed the subject matter first of Blake's Minor Prophecies, completed by 1795, and then of the major prophetic books on which he continued working until about 1820. The Four Zoas, Milton and Jerusalem. In his 60s, Blake gave up poetry to devote himself to pictorial art. In the course of his life, he produced hundreds of paintings and engravings, many of them illustrations for the work of other poets, including a representation of Chaucer's Canterbury Pilgrims, a suburb set of designs for the Book of Job, and a series of illustrations of Dante, on which he was still hard at work when he died. At the time of his death, Blake was little known as an artist and almost entirely unknown as a poet. In the mid-19th century, he acquired a group of admirers among the pre-Raphaelites who regarded him as a precursor. Since the mid-1920s, Blake has finally come into his own, both in poetry and in painting, as one of the most dedicated, intellectually challenging, and astonishingly original artists. He marked influence, his marked influence ranges from William Butler Yeats, who edited Blake's writings and modeled his own system of mythology on Blake's, to Allen Ginsberg and other beat writers, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy, and the graphic novels of the present day. The explication of Blake's cryptic prophetic books has been the preoccupation of many scholars. Blake wrote them in the persona or voice of the bard, who present, past, and future sees. That is, as a British poet who follows Spencer, and especially Milton, in a lineage going back to the prophets of the Bible. The nature of my work, he said, is visionary or imaginative. What Blake meant by the key terms vision and imagination, however, is often misinterpreted by taking literally what he, speaking the traditional language, 
of his great predecessors intended in a figurative sense. That which can be made explicit to the idiot, he declared, is not worth my care. Blake was a born ironist who enjoyed mystifying his well-meaning but literal-minded friends and who took a defiant pleasure in shocking the dull and complacent angels of his day by being deliberately outrageous in representing his work and opinions. Blake declared that all he knew was in the Bible and that the Old and New Testament are the great code of art. This is an exaggeration of the truth that all his prophetic writings deal in various formulations with some aspects of the overall biblical plot of the creation and the fall, the history of the generations of humanity and the fallen world, redemption, and the promise of a recovery of Eden and of a new Jerusalem. These events, however, Blake interprets in what he calls the spiritual sense. For such a procedure, he had considerable precedent, not in the Neoplatonic and occult thinkers, but whom some modern commentators align him, but in the spiritual interpreters of the Bible among the radical Protestant sects in 17th and 18th century England. The French Revolution, America, a prophecy, Europe, a prophecy, and the trenchant prophetic satire, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, all of which Blake wrote in the early 1790s while he was an ardent supporter of the French Revolution. He, like Wordsworth, Coleridge, Southey, and a number of radical English theologians, represented the contemporary revolution as the purifying violence that, according to biblical prophecy, portended the imminent redemption of humanity and the world. For discussion of these apocalyptic expectations, see the French Revolution in the NAEL archive. In Blake's later poems, Orc, the fiery spirit of violent revolution, gives way as a central personage to Los, the type of the visionary imagination in the fallen world. Blake's myth-making. Blake's first attempt to articulate his full myth of humanity's present, past, and future was the Four Zoas, begun in 1796 or 1797. A passage from the opening statement of its theme exemplifies the long verse line, what Blake called the march of the long, resounding, strong, heroic verse, in which he wrote his prophetic books, and will serve also to outline the book's vision. Four mighty ones are in every man a perfect unity cannot exist but from the universal brotherhood of Eden, the universal man to whom be glory evermore. Amen. Los was the fourth immortal starry one, and in the earth of a bright universe, empery attended day and night, Days and nights of revolving joy. Urthona was his name in Eden, in the auricular nerves of human life, which is the earth of Eden. He is in emanations propagated, daughter of Biola. Sing his fall.
fall into division and his resurrection to unity. Blake's mythical premise or starting point is not a transcendent God, but the universal man, which God and who incorporates the cosmos as well. Blake elsewhere describes this founding image as the human form divine and names him Albion. The fall in this myth is not the fall of humanity away from God, but a falling apart of primal people, a fall into division. In this event, the original sin is what Blake calls selfhood, the attempt of an isolated part to be self-sufficient. The breakup of the all-inclusive universal man in Eden into exiled parts, it is evident, serves to identify the fall with the creation, the creation not only of man and of nature, as we ordinarily know them, but also of a separate sky god who is alien from humanity. The universal man dis divides first into the four mighty ones, who are the Zoas, or chief powers and component aspects of humanity, and these in turn divide sexually into the male specters and female emanations. Thus, in the quoted passage, the Zoa known in the unfallen state of Eden as Urthana, the imag imaginative power, separates into the form of Los in the fallen world. In addition to Eden, there are three successfully lower states of being in the fallen world, which Blake calls Viola, a pastoral condition of easy and relaxed innocence without clash of contraries. Generation, the realm of common human experience, suffering and conflicting contraries, and Ulro, Blake's hell, the lowest state or limit of Blake rationality, tyranny, static negation, and isolated selfhood. The fallen world moves through the cycles of its history, successfully approaching and falling away from redemption, or success, successively uh, approaching and falling away from redemption, until by the agency of the Redeemer, who is equated with the human imagination and is most potently operative in the prophetic poet, it will culminate in an ap apocalypse. In terms of his controlling image, of the universal man, Blake describes this apocalypse as a return to the original undivided condition, his re resurrection to unity. What is confusing to many readers is that Blake alternates this representation of the fall as a fragmentation of the one primal man into separate parts with a different kind of representation in terms of two sharply opposed ways of seeing the universe. In the latter mode, the fall is a catastrophic change from imaginative insight, which sees the cosmos as unified and humanized, to sight by the physical eye, which sees the cosmos as a multitude of isolated individuals in an inhuman and alien nature. In terms of this distinction, the apocalypse toward which Blake, as imaginative artist, strives increasingly will enable men and women once again to envision all beings as participant in the individual life that he calls the Universal Brotherhood of Eden. That is a humanized world in which all individuals in familial union can feel at home. The text for Blake's writings is that 
the complete poetry and prose of William Blake, edited by David V. Erdman and Harold Bloom, Riverside Edition, Berkeley, 1782. Revised Edition, Berkeley, uh, 1982. Blake's erratic spelling and punctuation have been altered when the original form might mislead the reader. The editors are grateful for the expert advice of Joseph Viscomi, Robert Essick, and Alexander S. Gourlay in editing the selections from Blake. This poem by Blake is called All Religions Are One. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. The argument as the true method of knowledge is experiment, the true faculty of knowledge must be the faculty which experiences. This faculty I treat of principle one, that the poet, poetic genius is the true man, and that the body or outward form of man is derived from the poetic genius. Likewise, that the forms of all things are derived from their genius, which by the ancients was called an angel and spirit and demon. Principle second, as all men are alike in outward form, so and with the same infinite variety, all are alike in the poetic genius. Principle third, no man can think, write, or speak from his heart, but he must intend truth. Thus all sects of philosophy are from the poetic genius, adapted to the weaknesses of every individual. Principle four, as none by traveling over known lands can find out the unknown, so from already acquired knowledge, man could not acquire more. Therefore, a universal poetic genius exists. Principle five, the religions of all nations are derived from each nation's different reception of the poetic genius, which is everywhere called the spirit of prophecy. Principle six, the Jewish and Christian testaments are an original der derivation from the poetic genius. This is necessary from the confined nature of bodily sensation. Principle seventh, as all men are alike, though infinite, infinitely various, so all religions, and as all similars, have one source. The true man is the source, he being the poetic genius. 1788. The next poem by William Blake is, There is no natural religion. A. The argument. Man has no notion of moral fitness, but from education, naturally, he is only a natural organ subject to sense. Roman number one. Man cannot naturally perceive, but through his natural or bodily organs. Roman numeral two. Man, by his reasoning power, can only compare and judge of what he has already perceived. Roman numeral three. From a perception of only three senses or three elements, none could deduce a fourth or fifth. Roman numeral number four. None could have other than natural or organic thoughts. 
if he had none but organic perceptions. Roman numeral 5 Man's desires are limited by his perceptions. None can desire what he has not perceived. Roman numeral 6 The desires and perceptions of man, untaught by anything but organs of sense, must be limited to objects of sense. Conclusion If it were not for the poetic or prophetic character, the philo philosophic and experimental would soon be at the ratio of all things, and stand still, unable to do other than repeat the same dull round over again. 1788 The second part of, of the poem, There is no natural religion, part B. Roman numeral one. Man's perceptions are not bounded by organs of perception. He perceives more than sense, though ever so acute, can discover. Roman numeral two. Reason, or the ratio of all we have already known, is not the same that it shall be when we know more. Roman numeral three is lacking. Roman numeral four. The bounded is loathed by its possessor. The same dull round, even of a universe, would soon become a mill with complicated wheels. Roman numeral five. If the many become the same as the few unpossessed, more, more, is the cry of a mistaken soul. Less than all cannot satisfy man. Roman numeral six. If any could desire what he is incapable of possessing, despair must be his eternal lot. Roman numeral seven. The desire of man being infinite, the possession of infinite and himself infinite. Application. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God. He who sees the ratio only sees himself only. Therefore God becomes as we are, that we may be as he is. That's 1788. And that's, that's all I'm going to cover today. The next episode we will start with... Uh, songs of innocence and of experience and um, make that a whole episode I believe thank you and um, and please uh, consider supporting this podcast um, I really appreciate your listening um, William Blake is one of the most important romantic poets uh, considered today although in his day he was not as well known so um, thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll, uh, we'll do the uh, next episode tomorrow. This is episode 13, William Blake. And this is David R. Wellens Reads Literature, The Romantic Period.